You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John's Gospel, chapter 9. And when you found your place there, would you bow your head with me as we open in prayer? Our Father, we come now to your word. We believe that when your word is rightly preached, your voice is truly heard. And if any of us are to hear you speak, we must hear you speak in the pages of your sure and written word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And now we ask, O oh Father, that you would send your spirit to give us illumination and to use your word to instruct us and to teach us your people and that your word would in itself bring us light and uh, unite our hearts together to fear you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Referees. No, I'm not going to talk about referees today. Actually, I'm going to talk about the man born blind. And not the one standing in the corner of the end zone on fourth and goal with a minute 40 left in the game last Sunday, but a different man born blind. The man born blind who is in John chapter 9. If you were with us last week, then uh, you saw that last week was kind of an introduction to this whole idea of, of the miracle and uh, what it means to give sight to the blind. We saw that the miracle of giving sight to the blind was unique in a number of different ways, a number of different reasons. Um, for one, it is unique in Scripture because only Jesus is recorded to have given sight to a blind man. It is unique because it is an, in the Old Testament a miracle uniquely associated with the power and ability of God. It is unique because in the Old Testament it was a miracle uniquely associated with the coming of the Messiah. So when Jesus gave sight to the blind, it was intended to communicate that he was God and that he was the Messiah. That's what every Jew should have seen when they saw Jesus give sight to the blind. Because even the blind man says in verse 32, has it ever been, has it ever been known that anybody has opened uh, the eyes of a person born blind? This was such a unique miracle with such unique significance that it should have struck the Jews who saw it as something indicative of the Messiah and of God in human flesh. And then last week we looked at the four other occurrences of that miracle in the New Testament in Matthew and Mark and a couple of, uh, well, those two Gospels are the ones we looked at, but then there are other passages in Luke which are parallel accounts. And we did that in order that now looking at this miracle in John 9 of, on this man who was born blind, we might have sort of an Old Testament understanding, a background against which we could see this passage, and also a few details from the other miracle accounts that now we can compare and contrast what we read here with some of the other miracles. So having gotten that Old Testament background and, and that sort of context, let's read together the account of Jesus giving sight to this man who was born blind. When he had said this, verse 6, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. And one of the things you notice there probably is the brevity with which John recounts that miracle. Do you notice how short it is? That miracle, which takes up the rest of the chapter in explaining and giving the details of the reaction and the controversy that surrounded it, that miracle is given in just two short sentences. The economy of words and the brevity that is, is present there is really stunning. You would expect more details and we might even want more details. But I would bet that it is not the brevity of the account that struck you first when you read that. What was it? It was the odd means that are used. The spittle, the clay, 
putting the clay on the eyes, and then the instruction to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why those details? Why such odd details and why such an odd miracle, especially in this context? And that's what we want to look at this morning is just those two sentences and those the command and those odd means that the Lord uses to work this miracle. You'll notice that Jesus got right to work, and we saw a couple of weeks ago the urgency with which he was to be about his father's business. We saw why he was urgently about his father's business. There is a sense of urgency because only six months away from his own crucifixion, he knew that the day was drawing and night was coming when no man can work, and so he needed to be about what the father had given him to do. And so Jesus got right to work. He didn't take this man out of the temple to a more private location to do the miracle. He didn't take Jesus to a more, uh, Jesus didn't take the man to a more public location to do the miracle so that it might be more widely circulated. Jesus didn't even delay until another day when it might have been far more uh, acceptable to the Pharisees to do the miracle because we find out from verse 14 that he did this miracle on the Sabbath. And Jesus didn't wait till the following day or sometime later that week to do the miracle. He did the miracle on the Sabbath, knowing, of course, that this was going to get the ire of the Pharisees up, that they would not accept this. They would not, this would irritate them. They did it on the Sabbath. Jesus went right about doing the work. And listen, he was even, from all human vantage point, he was even under, um, in danger. Because he had just left the temple where they're gathering stones and looking around to stone him. He walks out of the temple, stops and does this miracle. He doesn't even usher the man to a more private place. He just goes about what the Father has given him to do, even in the midst of terrific danger. So now we ask, why spittle? We look in verse 6 and we see that he's, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle. There are two other occasions when Jesus used spit in doing miracles. And one of them we looked at last week. It was another instance of a man who was blind. Uh, Jesus used spit and applied it to the man's eyes. And that was the man who was healed in two stages. Do you remember that from Mark chapter 8? There was another example of a man who was healed and Jesus used spit in the healing of the man. That was from Mark chapter 7. And here's the account of the miracle. I want you to listen to this. And again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the regions of Decapolis. They brought to him, him, they brought to him, that is Jesus, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. So this is a deaf man, a man unable to speak. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephrapha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So those are the two other instances of Jesus using spit to heal him, a man bind in Mark 8 and a man who was unable to speak and who was deaf in Mark 7. Now we read that from our context and we think putting fingers into somebody's ears and then using spit and touching a man's tongue with it. Am I the only one in this room that that bothers a little bit? I hope not, right? Otherwise I'm very weary of a lot of you if I'm the only one that that bothers. It does bother, and I think it bothers us because from our Western perspective, that seems very odd. I I don't think it would have been nearly odd at all to a Jew or anybody reading Mark's Gospel from their context. They didn't have the kind of understanding of germs that we do and how things are communicated and all that. And besides that, of all the spittle in the world, whose spittle is the most pure? Really, Jesus is. This is somebody who could sneeze on you, and really it shouldn't bother you whatsoever to Jesus to do that. 
He is the Son of God, and by His own sovereign hand, He did a miracle in a certain way. He used spittle on, on now these three instances. And we might wonder, why the spittle? Something you, is there something unique about the spit that is being used in the miracle? Somebody asked me back when I introduced John 9, why the spittle? And I said to them back then, I'm going to have to wait till I get to the part where it's about the spit, and then I will explain to you the reason for the spittle. Because then I will have had a chance to study it. Now, having had a chance to study it, I have no idea why he used spit in these miracles. I really don't think that there's any, I really don't think there's anything in the context or anything in the spit itself that heals. And I want to explain this a little bit. Sometimes when we lack details in the text, I mean, ultimately, John doesn't tell us why Jesus used spit, does he? John doesn't tell us that here in Mark, uh, John 9. Mark doesn't tell us in Mark 8. Mark doesn't tell us in Mark 7. He just recounts the details of it. And so we wonder, why did Jesus use spittle? And so one of the dangers that Bible students come up against is every time that there is not a lack of details in the text, we try and fill in some of the details. We try and find meaning in the white spaces between the text. And then we try and draw that meaning out of the white spaces in the text and build a theology around it. And we need to be careful that we don't do that, that we don't make more of what is here than what is actually here. Let me give you a couple examples of the way that this miracle has been handled in sort of a fanciful fashion. One ancient writer, and by ancient I mean, I think, pre-Reformation back in the early church, one ancient writer said, the spit is a symbol of the divinity of Christ, the clay is a symbol of the humanity of Christ, and when these two came together to form clay, they combined to form that which brings healing to the nations. So in the humanity of Jesus and in the deity of Jesus, coming together, they brought healing to the nations. You might have said, Jim, I would have read that a hundred times and never got that out of there. You're exactly right. You wouldn't have got that out of there because it's not in there. That's the type of fanciful stuff that we need to stay away from. There's no symbolism here that you and I are to make more than what is really recorded on the pages of the text. Why the spit and why the clay? Another, another writer suggested that what Jesus was doing when he was using the spit and the dust to make clay is that he was forming out of the clay like God did in Genesis 2 verse 7. He was forming new eyeballs for the man and that he put the new eyeballs in the man's eye sockets. Does the text say that he made eyeballs or does the text say that he made clay? The text says he made clay, right? And then he put the clay on the eyeballs. You don't read more into the passage than what is there. Could Jesus have made an eyeball out of clay? He could have. But in this instance, he didn't. He just simply took spit, and he took the dust of the ground, and he made clay, and he applied it to the man's eyes. And he covered the man's eyes with the clay and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. If John wanted to communicate to us that Jesus made eyeballs out of clay... He could have done that because John has a way of telling us when Jesus makes something out of nothing or when he makes something out of something else, like water turning into wine. We read John chapter 2, we understand there was water. He changed the water into wine. We read John chapter 6, we understand there were bread and fish. He multiplied them and created this out of nothing. We understand that John has a way of explaining to us when Jesus turns one thing into another or makes something entirely out of thin air. But that's not what's going on here. He simply took the spit, he took the dust, he mixed it together, he made clay, and he applied it to the man's eyes. Now, why the dust and why the dirt of the ground? Is there anything significant at all about the spit or anything significant at all about the clay? One ancient writer suggested he used spit because water was not available. And that really what Jesus was doing is just looking for the clay. And he didn't want to go into the temple to get water. He didn't want to run and fetch water. Nobody was standing around with water. So he just used spit to make clay. That's entirely possible. What do we know for sure? He spat on the ground. He made clay, and he applied it to the man's eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's what we know for sure. 
But does that mean that there's no symbolism here? Does that mean that there's no meaning in the means here? I think there are some lessons that we can learn from the means that Jesus uses to effect this miracle. One of the things that I do think that we, sh- we, we might have an allusion to here is Jesus reminding people that he has the ability to create out of nothing. And he's using clay to do that. Let me explain what I mean for just a moment. Jesus had just been in the temple where he told the Jews, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was born, I am. He had just declared himself to be God in human flesh. Just use the divine title of himself. Now he walks out of the temple and he does a godlike miracle in a godlike means by taking the dust of the ground like God did in Genesis and applying it to the eyes of the man. It may be that Jesus intended by the means that he was using to remind the disciples who were watching of what he had just claimed to be moments earlier in the temple. And that is God in human flesh. So he does a godlike miracle in a godlike manner to remind them of his claim to be God in human flesh. That may be what's going on here. It may be a likely allusion to that act. But listen, ultimately, we recognize that every time Jesus did a miracle, whether it was putting fingers in ears through a spoken word, through a distance, or, uh, or, or, or putting his hands upon one, or touching saliva to the tongue, or applying clay to the eyes, or just applying spittle to the eyes, or any of the multitude means in which Jesus did a miracle, we always recognize this. He did miracles by his sovereign hand. And ultimately, Jesus did miracles on whom he wished, however he wished, whenever he wished, wherever he wished, as he wished, because he's the sovereign creator. And so what can we learn from the means that Jesus uses? I think that we'll see something here at the end, that there is there is some lessons that we can learn from this. All right, verse 6. He had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, applied clay to the eyes, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Now, if there is significance to be found in this miracle, I think that the significance to be found is in the pool itself and the reference to the pool. And I'll explain that here in just a moment. This pool of Siloam, this is not the only place this is mentioned in Scripture. Let me give you a little background on the pool of Siloam. And as I describe this, I think that the the, 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 the significance of the pool is going to become obvious to you. The pool of Siloam is located outside the temple grounds in the southeast corner of the city, right next to the city wall. The pool was fed through an aqueduct from the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley outside the city walls. And so this pool had an ever-flowing abundant supply of waters that came into this pool constantly from that underground spring. The pool is mentioned all the way back in the Old Testament, even in the book of Nehemiah. It's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, when it says that Hezekiah had built an aqueduct from the spring into that pool of Siloam inside the city walls. Now, Hezekiah did that because he feared an invasion or at least a siege from the outside force of Assyria. And Hezekiah wanted to secure the ability to have fresh water inside the city so that in the event of a siege, he always had a supply of fresh water and he could live inside as people could live inside the city walls indefinitely. So he built an aqueduct, an aqueduct that is still visible today, an aqueduct that you can still, I think, walk through today. It's called the King's Aqueduct. Hezekiah built it. And that that aqueduct brought water all the way from the, the Gahan Spring in the Kidron Valley underneath the city wall and into the pool of Siloam. That pool, by the way, is visible today as well. It's been recently excavated, even within the last 115 or 120 years. And there's a picture of it on the front of your bulletin. Did you notice that? That is today the pool of Siloam. That's what it looks like today after it's been excavated. Now, the waters probably are not as fresh as they were in Jesus' day, because I don't even think that the aqueduct is still used today, but that's the pool of Siloam. Now, that's the significance of it. It's called, and John tells us, that the pool is translated, Siloam translated means sent. 
It was likely called the scent pool because water was sent to that pool from the spring through the aqueduct. And so they just named, nicknamed it the water that is sent. And it has kind of a rich history of symbolism and significance in the mind of a Jew. And here's why. Do you remember a number of weeks ago now, back when we were in John chapter 7, I described to you the water pouring ceremony that was part of the Feast of Booths. Remember, there was the lamp lighting ceremony and the water pouring ceremony. Remember the water pouring ceremony they would have on the last, the great day of the feast, that that uh, altar inside the temple, and they would have a sacrifice on that altar, and they had all of the 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 leaves and the fruit and all of that that was part of that, and the people would sing, and the priest or one of the priests would go outside the temple down to the pool of Siloam, and he would draw from the pool of Siloam a big container of water, and they would bring it in through the water gate into the temple itself, and then they would pour that water over top of that sacrifice as part of that sort of the climax of that whole festival, that Feast of Booths. And it is at that time in John chapter 7 when Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus used the water as a symbol of himself. And to the Jew and in the Jewish mind, the pool of Siloam, which was always fresh and always abundant with fresh, clean, good water, was a symbol to them of the abundant blessings that God gave to the nation, which were always fresh, always abundant, always clean, pure, and always ever flowing. And so they would draw that water out, which was a symbol of God's blessings. They would pour it out over the sacrifice and the altar. And it is that illusion that Jesus is making in John 7 when he says, I am the water. You thirst. I'm the water. Come to me and drink, and I'll give you life. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you come to me, the, the water that is sent from the Father, I will give to you water, and it will be like the pool of Siloam, always bubbling up and ever flowing and ever fresh. Now, one of the main things that we have learned, through one of the main themes that we have seen through the Gospel of John is how Jesus constantly refers to himself as the one who was sent by the Father. Now, to be honest with you, if we went back to John chapter 1, and just read the references where Jesus speaks of being sent by the Father, we would fill the rest of our time here. But I just want to give you a couple references from the very context that we're describing here. Listen to John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. John 8:16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. John 8:26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. John 8, 28 and 29, So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And one last one, John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. So here is the one who is sent by the Father, who sends a man to the pool that is called sent. And this man going to the pool called sent and washing in the waters that were sent receives his sight. Now can you see how the significance is becoming obvious to you? What had Jesus just said to these Jews inside the temple? If you will come to me, the one who is sent by the Father, you will receive from me sight and life. And they rejected that. And when they rejected Jesus, they were rejecting the one who was sent by the Father. They were rejecting the living water, the one who promised them refreshment. They were rejecting that one who was sent by the Father. And they were saying, the one who claims to be sent, we want nothing to do with him. Now Jesus finds this man puts clay on his eyes and says, go to the pool that is sent. And the man, having gone to the waters that were sent, 
receives his sight. This was the promise to the Jews. Go to the one who is the living water, who is sent by the Father, and he will give you sight. They rejected that, and they remained blind in their unbelief. Had they obeyed like this man and come to the one who was sent, they would have received their sight. I think the significance of the miracle is in the pool itself. Because that's when the healing happens. It's not the water that is magical. Why did Jesus apply clay to his eyes? So that he could send him to the sent waters. And that having gone to the sent waters, he had received sight. What had Jesus said to the Jews? Come to the waters that are sent, and I'll give you sight. They rejected that. So Jesus found the man, sent him to the waters that were sent. And this man is a living parable, physically, of what Jesus would have done for them spiritually. He would have given them sight if they had come to the living waters that were sent from the Father. That's the significance of the pool. So look at verse 8. So, oh. Sorry, look at verse 7. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now there's all kinds of questions there that we want to have answered, right? How did he get to the pool if he's blind? I was telling one of my kids yesterday what I was preaching on today. If he was blind, how did he find the pool of Siloam? That's a good question. Probably grabbed somebody by the hand and said, hey, take me to the pool of Siloam. He went. Now ultimately, we have no idea what was going on in the mind of this blind man. What would you think if you couldn't see and a total stranger walked up, spit in the dust and rubbed clay in your eyes and said, go down and wash in the pool of Siloam? What would you do? Would your first reaction be to obey the words of this one? Or would you question it? I would question it. I would rush to any source of water that was nearer than the pool of Siloam to wash the clay and the spittle out of my eyes. That's what I would do. So why does this man, and this is curious, why does this man obey Jesus? Was Jesus a total stranger to him? Or had this blind man heard of Jesus and his teachings? Was he somewhat familiar with the name of Jesus and Jesus of Nazareth and what Jesus had done on other occasions? Whatever's going on inside of his mind, we don't know. Whatever questions he was asking, we don't know. We just simply read, he went. He went away, he found the pool of Siloam, he washed in it, and when did the miracle happen? The miracle happened not in the application of the spittle, and not in the man's obedience and the journey there, but the miracle happened in the washing of the pool of Siloam. Now what are we to make of all of these, these means that Jesus uses? Before I get into a couple of lessons that we learn, I want to make one final observation, this just real quick, because we're going to get to this later on in John 9. Everything Jesus has done in healing this man has been a violation of the Sabbath as far as the Pharisees were concerned. Not a violation of the actual Sabbath, the true Sabbath according to Scripture, but a violation of the Sabbath traditions. It was against the traditions of the elders or a violation of their traditions for him to spit, for him to make clay because they considered that kneading, which was work on the Sabbath, and you couldn't do that. couldn't apply spittle to the eyes. You couldn't heal somebody on the Sabbath. You couldn't go. You couldn't wash. You couldn't travel. You couldn't do any of those things on the Sabbath. Not only does Jesus himself violate the Sabbath traditions of the elders, the Pharisees, but he commands this man to do the exact same thing. Jesus didn't actually violate the Sabbath, but he violated their Sabbath traditions. And that's why they are hostile in verse 14. Now, what lessons do we learn from Jesus' use of means in this miracle and from the miracle itself? Let me. There are a number that I could give. I actually had to cut some of these out for the sake of time, but let me offer five. First, I want you to notice what the source of the power for this miracle was. Notice the source of the power for this miracle. Was it in the spit? Was it in the clay? Or the dust? Was it in the water of the pool of Siloam? Was the source of this man, of the power for this miracle? Did it rest in the man's obedience? What element, or what one of these elements is it that 
was the source of power behind this miracle. What is it that healed him? It was nothing other than the word and the will of Jesus. That's what healed him. It wasn't the spit. If there had been some power in the spit, and that's what the people had understood, then Jesus would have had, if, he, if, if, if people were like people today, Jesus would have had people following around collecting a spit every time he spit because they would think that there was magical healing power in the spit. Right? Or they would have said, tell us, Mr. Blind Man, formerly blind man, exactly where you were standing when he spit on the ground because we want to gather up that dust. There must be some healing element in the dust. And then we can put the dust in the little vials, and if you apply the dust to people and, and water and make clay, we can heal people. If you think that's far-fetched, you haven't seen much Christian television. Because that is exactly the type of nonsense that people do. They make a relic out of everything and think that by praying this or touching this or applying that, you can have some magical power. It's not in the spit. It's not in the dust. It's not in the clay. It's not even in the waters of the pool of Siloam. What was it? It was nothing less than the will and the word of Jesus. Jesus, our Lord, has a way of taking ordinary means and making them channels of extraordinary blessing. And that's what you have happening here. And listen, he does this in your life every single day, thousands of times. Things that are very ordinary to us. Electricity, vehicles, food, clothing, spouse, children, family, homes. These are ordinary things. All of us have them. They are vehicles of extraordinary blessing. Even communion itself. There's nothing magical in the bread. There's nothing magical in the juice that we use for communion. But those very common ordinary elements when Christ is present and we are here observing the Lord's Supper together, become a vehicle of, of grace to us. Of not saving grace, but you know what I mean, a fellowshipping grace. They become an extraordinary thing. Christ has a way of taking very ordinary things and turning them into channels of extraordinary blessings simply because He wills to work through those things. That's what we have happening here. A second lesson that I think that we learn is that God worked through this man's obedience to give him sight. He worked through this man's obedience to give him sight. What if this man had gone into the temple and found water from maybe the water washing ceremony or if he had gone into the temple to find somebody there with a, a bucket of water or if he had gone to a well or maybe stopped by his home on the way to the pool of Siloam and washed there, what would have happened? He would have remained blind, unbelieving, and in darkness. It was his obedience that God used to bring this man sight. Listen to me very carefully. In salvation, it is a very, the very same thing. God works through our obedience and when we obey the command of the gospel to bring life to us. He works through our repentance and through our faith. But listen, both repentance and faith are gifts from Him. And it is not my repentance that saves me, just as it's not this man's going to the pool and washing that saved him. It's not my faith that saves me. I am saved through faith, not by faith. I am saved through faith. And there's a difference. My repentance and my faith cannot save me. Who is it that saves me? God saves, because salvation is of the Lord. It is God who saves. How does He do that? He uses our obedience to the command of the gospel to repent and to believe to bring us salvation. It was the same thing with this man. He used this man's obedience to bring this man salvation. And you can contrast that with the response of the Pharisees in this very chapter, or chapter 8 actually, the response of the Pharisees. What did they do to the command of Jesus? They rejected it. Do you realize that all the way through John's Gospel, every time Jesus has confronted the Pharisees, He has commanded them to believe Him, to repent, to trust His Word, to obey His Word, and to embrace Him. And they have not done that. Let me give you a couple of examples. John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. 
John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 8.12, then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8.31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. John 8.51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What had Jesus been saying to the Jews? Believe me, keep my word, obey me, trust me, do as I say, I will give you life. What did they do? Nope. They want nothing to do with it. But what did this man do? This man did the very thing that Jesus had been t- telling the Jews to do. He believed his word. The wash in the pool of Siloam. The man went. He obeyed the command of Jesus. He followed the instructions of Jesus. And what was the result? He gained his sight. He gained his sight. You can contrast this man with the fake believers of John 8. Remember the John 8, 31? They believed in him. And then what did Jesus say? Even after they quote-unquote, believed in Him. He revealed that they were fake believers. They were still in bondage to their sin. They were still in darkness. They were still children of Satan. And they still wanted to kill Him, even though they had, quote-unquote, believed in Him. Contrast that with this man. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. A simple instruction, and he did it. And because of that obedience, God used that obedience to bring this man sight. A third thing we learn is this, that God uses a variety of means. And ultimately, I told you at the beginning, why did God use the spit and the, why did Jesus use the spit and the dust and the clay and then the pool of Siloam? It may be just for this reason and this reason alone. He was doing something different. It might be that God, Jesus, has nothing more in mind other than to demonstrate that He is not, that He doesn't have to work through a word given. He doesn't have to work through a touch. He doesn't have to work through putting fingers in ears. He doesn't have to work through any of the other means that we might expect. He just simply does something different. Because God works through a variety of means. And we see God do the same thing to, with our souls, working in a variety of means that He does to physical bodies. Many of the healings that Jesus did, some of them were the same, but many of them were just completely different. Fingers and ears, saliva to the tongue, saliva to eyes, a touch. One woman walked up and touched Him while He was in the crowd. He didn't even do anything or have any conversation with her prior to that. Sometimes Jesus healed from a distance. Sometimes He healed and they were right up front, right up close. All kinds of variety. God uses a variety of means to accomplish His ends. That may be just what we are intended to draw from this miracle. A fourth thing, a fourth lesson. God sometimes uses contrary means. Contrary means. Now by that I mean this. God often uses means to accomplish the very opposite of what we might expect those means to accomplish. Applying clay to somebody's eyes is more likely to make a seeing man blind than a blind man see. You realize that? Clay, you would, you would not expect clay put in somebody's eyes to give them sight. You would expect that to make them blind. You would look at the clay on the eyes and think, that'll never bring sight. That is, that is merely another impediment to sight. Now he's got clay on his eyes. He's blind and he can't see. Now he has clay on his eyes and he can't see. But this is exactly how God works. Through contrary means. He does things that we, in the end, would think that it will never accomplish anything good. And yet, that's how God works and how He does it. When God wanted to spread the gospel around the then-known Roman world, whom did He choose? A magnificent, magnificent, try it again. A great speaker? Oh, the irony there, huh? A great speaker? A powerful, noble man? A well-known man? No. He took the greatest persecutor of the church and made him an apostle. That is the opposite of what we would expect. We would have never seen that coming. We read it now in hindsight looking back, we think, oh yeah, of course. No, 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 no. You would never expect God to take 
the greatest persecutor of the church and make him the greatest preacher of the church. God works through contrary means. It is through the foolishness of the message preached that God displays his wisdom. It is in weakness that he shows his power. It is through the cross, which is an instrument of suffering and death, that God brings life. It is the humble that he exalts. It is the proud that he brings down. God does not use the the noble and the mighty. He uses the weak and the insignificant to accomplish the greatest things in his kingdom and the greatest things that the world has ever known. God uses contrary means. He sometimes uses means which would we would think would accomplish the exact opposite of what he does. And this is it. Applies clay to the eyes of the blind. And the disciples had to think to themselves, what good is that going to do? That's going to make him even blinder. It's possible to be more blind than blind. But that's what God used. He sometimes uses contrary means. A fifth lesson is this. I think God delights in using foolish means. He delights in using foolish means. Spit? Dirt? Clay? Pool? Look, if you're going to heal somebody, you need to rent a stadium. And you need to have a band. And you need to have lights. And you need to get the the crowd worked up into a fever pitch. You need to take an offering always before the healings, never after the healings. You take up an offering before the healings and we want pageantry. Give this man something great to do. Uh, Tell him to climb Mount Moriah. Tell him to climb a mountaintop. Tell him to climb to the top of the temple. Give him some magnificent thing to do. Don't just smear clay in his eyes. Tell him to go wash and walk away. Give him some pageantry, some ceremony, something big. It's the same thing with the Gospel. The Gospel is the most foolish message imaginable. And preaching the gospel is the most foolish means of communicating the most foolish message imaginable. That God would become a man, born in a virgin, die under the curse of God on a cross, and that that would bring salvation to the multitudes. Seriously? That's foolish. You realize that in the eyes of a blind person, in the eyes of an unregenerate person, that is the most wickedly foolish and stupid and simple thing that has ever been devised. That God would become a man, and that through that I can have righteousness. Listen, you tell a man to work his entire life to be made righteous in the sight of God, and he will do it. You tell a man to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and what will be the response? Too simple. There's got to be more to it than that. I can be infinitely righteous by turning from my sin and believing upon him. An unregenerate man would rather work his entire life for that righteousness, which he can't get than to simply trust and believe. The gospel is foolishness. Sometimes God uses foolish means to accomplish his ends. Well, those are some of the things that we learned from the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. Ultimately, we have to remember this. Jesus said, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And now we see it, right? Without this man being born blind and living his entire life in darkness, without that, we would never see the works of God displayed in this man. So we can be thankful not only for what Jesus did for this man, but we can be thankful that he was born blind. Because of that, we get to see what God is able to do. And through this man's blindness and then his cure, we learn more about our God. And he is a gracious and good God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do work through ordinary means and that you've chosen to work even through ordinary people like us. We are not many noble, not many mighty not many of noble birth, but we thank you that you use the foolish, the small, the insignificant things of the world to accomplish your great things. We thank you that you use us for that purpose because we are just delightful to be included in your purposes and your grace. We thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you that you have 
opened our spiritually blind eyes to see the truth and to know the truth and to believe the truth. All of that is your grace to us. And we thank you that you have worked through repentance and faith to bring us to a knowledge of your Son and to grant us the life everlasting. We thank you in the great name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.